Gracious Father, thank you for this opportunity to come together. Lord, we ask that you would be with us now, that you would edify us, that your spirit would be present with us. It's in Christ's name we pray, Lord. Amen. So, today's topic, we're going to be going over um, uh, the first 600 years of church history. Uh, some of the key highlights of uh, what happened in the formation of the church um, in the West from its inception in the first century all the way up to the start of what they would call the Middle Ages. Um, typically, historians of the church divide you know, the past 2,000 years of church history into essentially three sections. You've got the ancient era happening from you know around the, the fall of the Second Temple up to um, what's typically regarded as the start of the Middle Ages. The Middle Ages going from you know, 600 AD to around the time of the Protestant Reformation. And then the uh, modern era, which takes place from the Reformation up to this present day. Uh, we're going to be focusing on the first of those. And uh, essentially the thrust of this lecture, what I'm going to try to do is explain how did the church get to how it is now from just a group of, you know, Jesus' disciples going out throughout the Mediterranean world and spreading the gospel. So now we have, you know, um, all these denominations, all these different churches, all these, you know, different what happened in that 2,000-year gap. And we're going to be looking at those uh, the first formative 600 years and saying, well, what major um, events and persons had a major role within the uh, formation of the church as we have it today. Um, so the first question is, why study church history like in the first place? Um, you know, don't we have uh, the Bible? Isn't that enough of, you know, of what we need as the people of God, you know, have you know, God's word, his revelation to, to guide us? Um, and, and spreading the gospel and, and you know, being uh, a light to the world. Well, there, there's a couple reasons why it's advantageous to study, you know, the past 2,000 years of church history. Uh, first of all, as I said, it helps us understand how did we arrive at where we're at today? Um, why do we have certain denominations? Why do we have, you know, certain doctrines? Why are there different groups in, within Christ? And, you know, why is there Roman Catholicism? Why is there Eastern Orthodoxy? Uh, Protestantism, all the denominations within Protestantism, how did we get here from uh, the first century? Uh, second, uh, studying church history can actually give us a lot of insight as to how to deal with a lot of the issues and problems we face today. Uh, believe it or not, over the past 2,000 years, things haven't really changed too drastically in terms of challenges that the church faces. A lot of problems that we face today, like for example, how do you deal with a culture that's antagonistic to your message? Um, what do you do about you know people that believe you know believe differently than, than us? Um, what do you do about people that bring in false teaching to the church? Um, these are all the issues that the church has faced you know within its, its past two thousand years, and, and, and studying how you know our ancient uh, brothers in the faith dealt with this can give us an advantage um, in dealing with you know the problems we face today. Um, in addition to this, God didn't stop working in the first century. Uh, God continues to work providentially amongst His people. Uh, over the past 2,000 years, and just in the same way God was with Israel and uh, guided them as a nation and basically providentially led every, all these different events to bring about becoming the Messiah, he's doing the same orchestration today. Um, it's just contained not in the Bible, but instead in, in other writings, in like the ancient church fathers, in um, the medieval fathers. Um, we can see how God actually worked amongst uh, our brothers and sisters in the faith from uh, ancient period. And then finally, uh, all history is God's history. 
Um, all truth is God's truth. Uh, it's vital to study this just like it is, you know, vital to study any other field of inquiry. Um, and, uh, you know, we can profit from, you know, just having a, a, a greater understanding of the rich inheritance and legacy that we have. So, starting from the first section, Jesus and the Apostles, uh, within the first century, this was the formative years that we see, like, for example, within the Gospels and, and, and Acts, and then read throughout the Epistles, is this was the start and birth of, of the Church itself. Um, starting from Pentecost uh, in uh, the 30s, had all these different uh, people collected together within Jerusalem for Pentecost, the Diaspora Jews, and then the apostles were sent forth subsequently after Pentecost to spread the gospel throughout the ancient world. And um, it initially began as just a Jewish movement amongst Jewish people. Um, all the apostles were Jewish. Um, all the authors of the New Testament and, and possibly uh, Luke were, were also Jews. And it was a Jewish message that was sent to the Jewish people. But um, also subsequently included evangelizing the Gentiles. And this was, this was major. This, I'm going to try. Did anybody hear me okay without this? Better.
instead, they had to figure out, well, how do we evolve and, and deal with this major change that we don't have to tempt? Uh, so Judaism uh, essentially evolved to what's known as rabbinic Judaism today. Um, uh, the Pharisees that you read about the Gospels, they became what's known as the, uh, the rabbinists. And they had a stronger emphasis on obedience to Torah, Christ, the sacrifice, <coughs>
you had the apostles start dying off, you know, within the first century, you had Paul and Peter executed under the uh, emperor Nero, and then you had the other apostles, you know, dying off one by one. Uh, John probably in the 90s uh, after being on Patmos, and then uh, the various other disciples being, you know, martyred or dying. For example, Thomas went so far as to, to India, and he was uh, martyred there. Uh, there's actually still a church commemorating him uh, and his, his, his mission that far from the east. But um, this was like the first generation, the apostolic fathers after the apostles. Um, there's a lot of, of them that either knew the apostles or knew associates with the apostles. Um, this guy right here is named Polycarp. And in this picture right here, um, he's being uh, martyred for refusing to worship the emperor, for, for refusing to renounce allegiance to Christ and instead uh, um, uh, worship the emperor. He instead said, no, I'm, I'm not going to do that. This is about in his 90s uh, when this took place. Um, he was taught under the Apostle John, and we still have an extant number of his writings, and they affirm things like, for example, the deity of Christ, uh, his death and resurrection, his lordship, basically all the four tenets of the early Christian faith. And the reason why he's very important is that he has this direct lineage to the Apostles. He was somebody that knew the Apostles and wrote extensively. And with his writings, we can actually you know, clarify a lot of the, you know, or I should say, provide a lot of corroboration towards Christian doctrines that we teach now. These things weren't just invented. These were, you know, things that the associates, the apostles themselves, confirmed and put in their writings. Um, and his writings, along with other figures like, for example, Ignatius uh, or uh, Irenaeus, these were known as the Apostolic Fathers. They were like the first generation. And you know, from their writings, uh, we can see that this is when the church really started to realize they were on their own. They didn't have the apostles with them anymore. They had to figure out what. Their heritage was and what their identity was, and in this period of time, you know, they collected the, the writings of the apostles and they started to form themselves as a, um, an organized missional movement. And so that was Generation One. In this period of time, it was also characterized by what's known as Catholicity, which doesn't have anything to do with the Roman Catholic Church. What this has to do with is that the church is a large start to realize um, that it needed to be unified in its proclamation of the gospel and. Jesus as the Son of God, and, and um, basically unifying themselves within uh, the faith. Um, and as a result of this, they started networking even more. You had various churches spread throughout the Mediterranean world, like in Italy and Greece and North Africa, and there was a stronger emphasis on having a unit of communication, networking, uh, working together to act as uh, you know, this, this movement. And persecution that they were facing, both from uh, the Jewish and Roman factions, you know, didn't lighten up. So they had to uh, splitify and unify together in order to counteract you know, the, the pressures that they were facing. Which led to this. Um, after you know, the Christians identified themselves as a movement and, and, and solidified themselves more within Catholicity and started, you know, identifying themselves as, well, we're a distinct group. We are, you know, our, uh, the new people of God. We are throughout the entire world spreading the gospel, uh, the hostility against them only increased. In this period of time, uh, not only were the Christians self-identifying, but they became more and more different and distinct uh, in the eyes of their contemporaries, uh, mainly from uh, external parties, like, for example, the Roman government and then outside, uh, you know, uh, 
push back on the challenges they are facing in the outside world. Um, this uh, figure right here is by, goes by the name of Justin Martyr, and he represents uh, this subsequent group after the Oxal Fathers known as the, the Apologists, or uh, the people that uh, defended the Christian faith. Uh, that word apologist comes from apologetics, which comes from the Greek word apologia, which means to give a verbal defense. Um, that word occurs in the New Testament, 1 Peter 3.15, where he gives a command for believers to always be able to give a reasoned defense with hope within. And what that's talking about is uh, Peter's commanding early Christians, you know, to be able to give a verbal defense, to be able to defend what you believe with why you believe it. And what these guys essentially did was take up the challenge and push back on the, uh, the antagonism that they were currently facing. Um, there was a great deal of uh, persecution uh, starting to come out from uh, Roman officials. Uh, I mentioned earlier how Christianity started to be recognized as being received from Judaism. So it no longer had that protective umbrella that's being recognized as being illicit religion. Instead, it's fell in the realm of superstitio. Uh, rose to the challenge and instead wrote 
works. Some folks knew the actual emperor himself. Like for example, uh, uh, Irenaeus uh, writes a work for ease. He's writing to the uh, emperor at the time and saying, you know, absolve us of these charges. We're not anybody that's you know trying to overthrow the state. We pay our taxes. We follow your laws. We do everything that you know obedient citizens are supposed to do. We are not a threat to you, but we are not going to acknowledge the court. Um, answering charges like, for example, you know, of uh, cannibalism and 
continued on up to the 300s until it got to an emperor by the end of Diocletian, where it reached its zenith. Um, Diocletian, for some reason, in the last few years of his reign, went on an absolute rampage against Christians. He had anybody who identified as Christian and his army executed, he would have them round up in prison, he would even have them
in addition to this, things uh, not only helped the church, not only did it change the political environment the church was in, but suddenly, culturally, for the earliest Christians, things changed drastically. Uh, they moved from being a persecuted minority to now they're you know being confronted and pampered by the state. Suddenly, they're you know, the favored people. Uh, they're no longer having to worry about being excommunicated or executed or anything like that. Instead, <coughs> people uh, realized because
Well, that, that kind of uh, providential outworking of, of good coming out of, of, of major misunderstandings essentially is what happened at you know, these various councils. This first major one right here was known as the Council of Nicaea, and this is the first one that happened. Uh, I just want to point out, by the way, has anybody ever read The Da Vinci Code by Dan Brown or heard of it? Um, yeah. he, he makes a note that this council was about uh, the canon of the New Testament. That's where the books were later chosen. Thank you. 
Well, Jesus was truly human and truly divine, but the natures were distinct. He goes so far as to say that there were two. Jesus and the Son of God were two distinct persons. And uh, the Council of Ephesus says, was about saying, no, no, this is, this is also a misunderstanding. Jesus had true humanity and true divinity, but he is also, not only just those true natures, one distinct person. There isn't two distinct persons there. Um, you can't have something like, for example, saying the Son of God didn't suffer on the cross. It was only Jesus that, that suffered on the cross. You can't have something like, for example, say that uh, you know, there's a distinction between the Son of God who is preexistent and present with God and then Jesus who is here on earth. That's a heretical view. And so that's what the Council of Ephesus was about. And finally, the Council of Chalcedon, you know, we finally got the issue of divinity hammered out, humanity, and then the unity of natures. Chalcedon, what this dealt with was the, a reactionary view towards Nestorius, which viewed Jesus didn't have distinct any natures anymore. They were blended together into one new hybrid known as monophysite, which was that Jesus wasn't really God, he wasn't really man, just uh, those natures being distinct. And said he was kind of, and to use the analogy that was spread forth to explain this view, like a drop of honey that's put into water and dispersed. That's what happened to his man. So he's not really truly human, not truly divine. He's just this sort of weird new hypothetical place. And this one essentially said, no, true humanity, true divinity, one person, no blending, and there's a clear distinction of the natures. But you can see over you know, the course of more than like 130 some odd years, providentially how the church came to hammer out you know, its view, its proper understanding of Jesus by the influx of all of these false views. It's kind of like in the formation of the New Testament, God would allow these false beliefs to come around and instead <coughs> have to come together and further clarify and solidify on what the actual true doctrine is. The same pattern existed, you know, and continued throughout uh, you know, the people of God. And this is what happened, you know, up. This would happen, the same pattern continued up into the Middle Ages and into now. And Protestant Reformation itself, I mean, that was reactionary. A lot of the abuses that were taking place by the, uh, the Roman Catholic Church, things like, for example, some indulgence
drivers and everybody else that was fleeing the destruction came uh, fleeing Rome, and, and, and his church took a major influx of a lot of refugees and survivors of the destruction. And a lot of people at this period of time were bl blaming the Roman Empire, um, or sorry, were blaming Christians for the fall of the Roman Empire uh, because Christians weren't acknowledging the Roman gods. Uh, they weren't, you know, uh, recognizing them and paying them homage. Uh, the city, you know, faced destruction. Um, Augustine, as a result of this, wrote the work called The City of God, uh, in which he challenges that view and said, no, there is no city that's supposed to last forever other than the city of God. It's supposed to be you know, the city of the, of, of the true people of God, and Rome is not in. There, and he pointed out there have been various empires throughout history, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, um, you know, the Greeks, everybody else has had their time in the line Instead, you know, the city of man will always fall. These are just temporary kingdoms. It's instead the, the city of God. And instead showed that, you know, it wasn't the Christian's fault as to why Rome fell, but instead this was within the very, you know, plan and, and orchestrating of, of God throughout all of history, throughout the various empires that previous. All these cities of man, so to speak, fell, and so the city of God will continue on. The, the city that God originally started in the beginning and had planned um, will continue throughout history. And these two cities will be at war with each other. So we should expect things like the Roman Empire to fall. But he is absolutely invaluable, not only within his own time frame, but even now, uh, we're such a good possession of the city of God, our precious sources of, of theological authority. So, going on from that, the destruction of the, the, the Roman Empire and its dissolution started at the beginning, uh, roughly what's known as the Middle Ages. Um, and, and during this period of time going on into the future, uh, Europe will experience a rebirth uh, through the civilization, uh, a rebirth in its civilization through the Christian church. And the entire uh, area, which was once pagan, will now be Christianized. And through the uh, work of the church, through monasteries and everything else, civilization and culture from that period of time in the ancient world was preserved. Uh, in the future, uh, throughout this period of time, there's a continuing division of, of the eastern and western branches of Christendom, uh, giving rise to Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy, uh, uh, respectively. And then, within the 7th century, uh, a fellow by the name of Muhammad came on the scene, and thus began the start of Islam, and subsequently, uh, uh, the world's second largest religion, and uh, culminating into radio conflict between Christians and Muslims known as Christians. All this will be covered once we ever get to the Middle uh, So, in summary, just from uh, our lecture today, we can see that God used various struggles and trials to the earliest Christians uh, to both refine it and develop it. It was through various struggles and problems that the church faced that gave it an identity and, and uh, forged it to be uh, the, the, the unit that it is now. Um, our most fundamental doctrines, are, for example, the Trinity, the nature of the Incarnation, the uh, hypostatic union, the blending of the natures of Christ, uh, came to their fruition in formulation during this period of time. And then we possess an inheritance you know, from you know, these, these fellow figures, these fellow saints who are brothers and sisters in Christ. And we can see that you know, within the past, their, their labors have still been immense to this day. And you know, uh, we, we miss out if we refuse to, to study the, the, the legacy of the inheritance. I know that was a kind of a fire alarm and uh, it off, but I kept the end originally open for questions if anybody had any. I know it was a lot of material to get through. But. Thanks, Mike. Appreciate it.
I do stuff. That was, um, I would say, of all my areas of uh, church history, the ancient is probably my favorite one to study and expound upon because it, it really is, um, how should I say, where it, not only is it like most neglected in terms of like where we can reach a lot of theological insight and everything else, you know, in, in from the doctrinal writings, is, uh, but it was really formative for a lot of things we just take for granted today. Uh, the Apostles' Creed, the, the Chalcedonian Creed, the Nicene Creed, um, our understanding of nature of salvation, our, our understanding of the nature of, of the dual natures of Christ and the Incarnation. Like, um, these were, were forged by these people that ultimately a lot of them gave up their lives so that we could, we could celebrate and, and, and have these doctrines. And um, it's, it's, it's just kind of strange, you know, what we were talking about yesterday. Um, a lot of people don't know how these came to earth, how these uh, came to existence. So, um, open down the road, we can do the Middle Ages next. Uh, that one, when we go over the nature of, like, for example, the Crusades and the division of Eastern Orthodoxy and Roman Catholicism, I think there's a lot of, of, of misunderstandings that are put by the culture at large over the nature of those different branches of Christ and you know, what the Crusades were all about, especially now that we, you know, have a problem uh, with radical Islam, there's, there's a major misunderstanding that's, that's put forth in the nature of the Crusades. Have you read through the writings of, like, Polycarp <laughs> and uh, Justin, or the, they're just so voluminous? So, the, at the Council of Nicaea at 325, um, they have, uh, there's Gentleman by the name of Philip Schaefer compiled all their writings of the Antonician fathers, everybody from the apostles up to Nicaea. I have their 10 volume set, it's about that much. And then you have up to like 600 the uh, post Nicaean fathers, which are, you know, like Augustine, there's uh, John Chrysostom, there's, and theirs is like twice as long. So I have them, I've read through part of it, I've read City of God and Confessions, Dude, it's, it's volumes. They are so honest that just the Antonician of Fathers has about a million quotations of the New Testament and we're still fine for them. So anybody who says that they've read all of Augustine, you can just know that unless they're a Augustinian scholar, they're lying. There's just way, way, way more. Ah. 